Our text for this morning is taken from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. As you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let us pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of your word, for gathering us together as your people this morning to hear it. We ask that by your spirit, you would illuminate our hearts, giving us understanding, helping us to see how it applies to our lives and how you desire to be at work in us for the sake of your glory and for the good of others. Encourage us, convict us, and enable us and empower us to be faithful in our generation, to guard the gospel for the sake of your glory and for the next generation. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So I met my friend Kevin at a coffee shop in 2010. Now, in 2010, I noticed that Kevin was reading the book Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And this book is particularly important and special to me because it was the book that I was reading when I became a Christian. And so I struck up a conversation with Kevin, and I discovered that he too had been brought to Christ through the writings of C.S. Lewis. And so over time, we became good friends. We took some classes together at a local Bible college, and we even worked together uh, during my time at the Apple Store. And so during that time, I had a, a delightful time seeing my friend Kevin grow as a Christian. I watched him get married, uh, and I began to see him explore what it means or what it would mean for God to call him to be a missionary overseas. But after Kevin and his wife had their first child, something happened. I had heard from Kevin's wife that things were not well in their marriage and that she was very concerned for Kevin and his faith. And so when I got together with Kevin to reach out to him as a brother in Christ and as a friend, I was surprised when he said, life is so much different than I expected. He explained that his marriage was very, very difficult, that he and his wife were always in conflict, that he found this new experience of being a parent immensely difficult and stressful and confusing. He said something to the effect of, Eric, I love my son, but I am not sure if this is what I wanted. And as I listened, I asked God to help me speak the truth to Kevin, the truth from God's word, to encourage him, to be reconciled to his wife, 
to embrace his call as a parent. I said things like, God will strengthen you to love your wife as Christ loved the church. I said things like, God will strengthen you to be the parent that he has called you to be. And then Kevin said something that I will never forget. He looked at me from across the table and he said, Eric, I'm not even sure if God exists anymore. And if God doesn't exist, why should I stay married? I think I'm, I think I'm gonna leave my wife. How would you respond in a moment like that? When someone that you care about needs to hear the truth of God's word, I will confess in that particular moment, I sat there shocked and confused and very nervous. I knew that God was calling me to speak the truth of God's word, to be, but to be honest, I, I really didn't know what to say in response. And I think this is a common experience if we're all honest with ourselves, at times, we too find it difficult to speak the truth of God's word to those in our lives who need to hear it. This is why Paul wrote this portion of 2 Timothy. You remember that Timothy, he's a young man from the town of Lystra. He was also a companion of the Apostle Paul, the author of 2 Timothy, throughout Paul's missionary journeys throughout the world. He and Timothy planted churches together. They supported churches together. And, and even though Timothy had all this church experience, commentators tend to think that Timothy was a pr profoundly timid and unassuming young man, one who was constantly in need of encouragement and kind of uh, drawing on to speak up and to stand firm. We're continuing our sermon series this morning in the letter of 2 Timothy. And at the heart of 2 Timothy is this conviction that God has saved us and called us to leave a gospel legacy. As it says in the first chapter, to guard the good deposit, to guard the treasure of the gospel that has been entrusted to us. And in the first week we saw that the foundation of this legacy is to cherish the gospel message and to cherish our gospel heritage to have gospel priorities in our lives. Paul said we need to be thinking like good soldiers, always on the Lord's mission. We need to be thinking like winning athletes who are running according to the rules, always submitting to God's word. And like diligent farmers, those who are willing to keep their hands on the plow, keeping our hope clear that the word of God planted will not come back void. But no matter how much we have these priorities, they are always lived out in these awkward and difficult seasons, these awkward and difficult conversations. This is why in verse one, Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, that is proclaim God's word, be ready in and out of season. God is calling each of us in the various relationships that he has placed us to be ready to speak the word of truth, his truth, into the lives of those who need to hear it. But speaking God's truth, the truth of his word, is not a one-size-fits-all approach. While the, the truth of God's word never changes, how we speak the truth of God's word must be shaped by the kinds of people and the kinds of circumstances that we may be speaking into. And this is why Paul says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. 
This word that is translated reprove in the Greek, it literally means to expose with light, or as we might say in the English, to enlighten somebody. There are times when we are called by God to speak the truth of his word to those who need convincing of the truth of God's word. This idea is not so much speaking to a person who is willfully rebelling against God's word, but a person rather who is ignorant of what God's word actually says. Now, this does not excuse a person's behavior or a person's sin. If you are ignorant of a law and yet break that law, that does not excuse breaking the law, but it does shape how you might approach somebody who is finding themselves breaking a law. Now, I was reminded of this several years ago when I went over to uh, some friends of mine in the city. So I drove over for a meeting at their house, I parked on the street and went in to spend some time with them. I was there for a couple of hours, came back outside, and you know what I found on my windshield? a parking ticket. Now, to be truthful, totally honest, I did not see the signs that told me I was not allowed to park on that side of the street, but it didn't matter, right? Ignorance of the law did not excuse me breaking that law. I was guilty of that parking violation, but I, I want you for a moment here to imagine if someone had been in the car with me. Someone had been in the car with me and they saw the traffic sign that said, Eric can't park on this side of the street. Now, I want you to imagine that they saw the sign and they chose not to tell me that I was parking on the wrong side of the street. How would you feel about that person? Well, Penn Jillette, the magician and famous atheist, he tells us how he feels about this person. He says, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't share their faith. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and that people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that's not really worth telling them because you would make it socially awkward, and atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say that you should just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate somebody not to tell them that? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell people? We are called to speak God's word to those who need to be enlightened. In Romans chapter 10, Paul says, how are these people going to hear the gospel unless somebody tells them? We are called not only to speak the truth of God's word to those people, those people in our lives who are ignorant of what God's word says, those people who need convincing of what God's word says, but we also need to be willing to speak to the, the truth of God's word to those who need to be confronted. And I want you to notice here in, in verses two through four how Paul continues. He says, preach the word, be ready in and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. He says, sometimes... It won't look like simply seeking to convince them. It will look like rebuking them. This word means to sharply address them out of a grave concern. And, and Jesus actually gives us an example of what this kind of conversation might sound like when he was talking with Peter in Mark 8. You remember in Mark 8, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of God. And he says to Peter, you are absolutely right and then begins to explain that the Messiah had not come to destroy the Romans and establish this political kingdom, but rather to suffer 
and die for the sins of his people. And Peter, it says in Mark 8, took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Jesus. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter. He spoke to him sharply and he said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It is precisely because Jesus loved Peter that Jesus was willing to speak sharply with Peter about the evil desires that were shaping his thinking and informing his decisions. Peter's desires in this passage are not rooted in God's word about the life of the Messiah. They were rooted in Satan's lies about the Messiah. Jesus didn't need to enlighten Peter. He needed to rebuke Peter in order to get Peter's attention. So how, how can we tell if someone in our lives needs to be confronted in this way? And what's particularly helpful is Paul gives us three descriptions about these people, those who need to be not convinced, but need to be confronted. I want you to notice in verses three and four, he says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wandering off into myths. In verse 3, Paul uses this phrase. He says, people will not endure sound teaching. The person that Paul is talking about here is not the person that is ignorant of God's word. It is a person who calls themselves a Christian, but is knowingly rejecting the truth of God's word. The, the, the phrase here, it carries with it the idea of a person that can't even stomach the truth. That's the idea in this part of the passage. They, they, they carry with the idea of the person being repulsed by the truth that they see in God's word. And instead of hungering for God's word, they find themselves insatiably desiring what God calls sin. These are the people that are not only those who are rejecting the truth of God's word, they are also overcome by sinful desires. Paul describes these people as having itching ears, people who will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. The, the image here is very, very striking. If you allow it to kind of form in your imagination, these people, they have an itch that they must scratch. They have a sinful desire that must be fulfilled. And yet we know from God's word, not all desires ought to be fulfilled. Because sin is like spiritual pica. Maybe you know about this medical condition. Pica is a medical condition where someone desires to eat things that aren't food. For example, someone who has pica might really, really want to drink paint thinner. Now, if you don't treat pica properly, you can imagine that this would cause serious physical harm, if not death. Our sin nature creates in us evil desires, desires to violate God's design in our lives and in the world. And like Pica, our sin nature leads us to more and more misery and ultimately to spiritual death. But I want you to imagine if someone who has Pica, instead of receiving treatment, this person just goes from doctor to doctor looking for someone that will simply tell them, you know what? It's okay to drink that paint thinner. Just don't do it to excess. You know, just drink a little bit 
of that paint thinner and you really should be fine. How would you feel about that doctor? Would you want that doctor? How would you feel if a loved one had that doctor? How would you feel about, about that person who is going from doctor to doctor looking for permission to satisfy a harmful desire? Sadly, this is happening spiritually all around us all the time. Paul says that these are people who are not only turning away from the truth, they are seeking false teachers to tell them what they want to hear. Like a, a report that I read this last week, there's a PC USA pastor in North Carolina who gave a sermon. And in that sermon, they explained why Christians should, should support abortion for any reason and without restriction. And in that sermon, they said things like abortion is a moral good. Abortion is an act of love, an act of grace. Abortion is a blessing. Now, I'll just pause here for a second to be very clear. Scripture is profoundly clear that all of us, those in the womb, those outside of the womb, are fearfully and wonderfully and personally made by God. And we are all made in his image, worthy of dignity and worthy of protection. Abortion is not a grace. It is not an act of love. It is not a blessing. It is a grave sin. It is a sin which can be forgiven. It is a sin for which there can be redemption and reconciliation. But it is a sin nevertheless. But it's not simply those maybe that we might associate with the left political leanings that are surrounding themselves with teachers that will scratch their ears. The right, politically speaking, is doing it too. Like a series that I watched this last week that's put out by Jordan Peterson and the guys over at Daily Wire. They released this series on the book of Exodus and it already has a million views. And as I watched this kind of first episode in this series, I saw some professing Christians and some professing atheists gathered around a table engaged in what I can only describe as a godless Bible study. It was a group of men, highly intellectual men, engaged in a Bible study that simply asked the question, what does this passage mean to you? They moralized Exodus, they psychologized Exodus, they allegorized the story of Exodus. God was treated as a literary character, simply as a literary character, or if they wanted to take him seriously, they called him an ethical spirit allied with the cause of freedom. The Bible was not treated as God's word. It was treated as something to play with in order to think about conservative values. The Bible was never approached as the living word of God. As an aside here, it's no wonder when we think about things like this in our culture, why our teens and those in Gen Z look at Christianity in America and by and large are finding themselves disillusioned, discouraged, and in many ways, frankly, done. But I would argue that perhaps they are not so much done with the gospel about the message of Christ as much as they are done with those who are surrounding themselves with these type of Christian teachers. They're done with those who don't speak about Christ and the gospel. They're done with those who simply want to use the Bible to scratch their own ears and the ears of others. I think we would do well to ask the Lord to search our own hearts and that we would do well to consider our teens' observations about our culture. Because God calls us to warn people who are walking away from the Lord, 
to warn people who are rejecting his word, who are overcome by sinful desire. God's word says we need to rebuke them. We need to speak to them sharply, to turn away from their sin, to trust in Christ's work on their behalf on the cross, to find forgiveness of their sin, to find the ability by God's spirit to live according to God's word. But not everyone is unaware of what God's word says. Not everyone is willfully disobedient to God's word. Paul finishes this list by saying that there are some people among us who are just simply discouraged and doubting. I want you to notice what he says here at the end of the list. He says, preach the word, be ready in and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Now, we, we don't use the word exhort very often in normal conversation these days. But the word in the Greek here is actually very instructive. The, the word here that's translated exhort, it, it literally translates to help alongside. And, and perhaps a, a metaphor that we could use to maybe paint a picture in our minds of what this word is, is a personal trainer. All right, so I want you to imagine you go to the gym and you have a personal trainer coming alongside you to help you. Personal trainers are there to help you. They're there, there to encourage you. But they're not there to encourage you by flattering you. They're not there to encourage you by pandering to you. They are there to spur you on. They are there to spurn you on toward the good, toward that which will truly help you to grow. To exhort someone is not so much to enlighten those who are unaware or to rebuke those who are in rebellion, but to come alongside those who are doubting and discouraged with the point of building them up with the goal of strengthening them, especially in the midst of doubts. In fact, if you go to the book of Jude, you'll find a command that says, have mercy on those who doubt. Mercy. Exhortation looks like strengthening those who doubt by coming alongside them with the truth of God's word in a merciful way. And this shows us that God doesn't simply care about what we say when we speak the truth of his words. He also cares about how we say it. I want you to look here again at verse two. It's kind of all right there. Paul says, preach the word, be ready in and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. What Paul is saying here is, Timothy, when you speak to people the truth of God's word, you need to do it in love. What does it actually mean to speak the truth in love. I think it means first to speak the truth clearly. I want you to notice here that Paul says the word teaching. Now this word, it literally does mean teaching, but what Paul is saying here is says, when you speak to people about the truths of God's word, you need to do it in a way that you are sure they understand what you are saying. It means that we need to know, first and foremost, what God's word says about all of the variety of cultural issues or life circumstances that we might find ourselves in or that those we're seeking to love might find themselves in. And that when we go to reprove and rebuke and exhort people, we're not called to use our words or our wisdom or our opinions about their life or their circumstances. We are to love them with God's word. To speak clearly to them means we need to know what God has said. But we also need to understand that we need to not avoid awkward and hard conversations. 
that the implication is clear. If we're going to take the time to know what God's word says and come to these people, we need to have the courage not to avoid those difficult conversations. The second thing that Paul says is that we need to speak compassionately. When we come to people in order to reprove them, to enlighten them of what God's word says, when we come to them to confront them in their sin and actually rebuke them, when we come to them hoping to be compassionate and exhort them, we need to be ready to suffer long with them. This is what he says by saying, with complete patience. Now, I, I don't normally quote the King James Bible. I'm not, I don't have a problem with the King James Bible. I just don't normally quote it. But the King James Bible's translation of this passage is actually fantastic. Because the word patience here, I think, captures better what it actually feels like to approach somebody compassionately. Here's what it would read if you read it in the King James. Reprove rebuke and exhort with long suffering. Speaking the truth in love means willing to suffer with that person, to stay with that person in the midst of reproving them and rebuking them or exhorting them, to not give up on them, even as you seek to address difficult things in their lives. Galatians chapter 6 says it this way, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Speaking the truth in love means speaking clearly what God's word says, not avoiding the topic. But when we don't avoid the topic and we choose to speak courageously, we need to speak courageously in a long-suffering and compassionate way. I experienced this personally in college when my friend, good friend, Mike, saved my spiritual life. I was in sin, unrepentant, continuing in sin, and it was exposed to my friend Mike. When my friend Mike discovered what I needed to be rebuked for, he was bold and courageous, knew exactly what God's word said concerning the sin that I was engaged in, and came to me one-on-one -on -one and said, brother, I have some deep concerns about what I know is going on in your life. Will you please talk to me about these things? And he reminded me of the gospel. And to this day, I credit the Lord's work through Mike as the reason that I was drawn back into the fellowship and experienced Christian community and brotherhood in a way that was remarkable and life-changing. I'm thankful for my friend, Mike, for being faithful to speak clearly and compassionately to me because this is precisely how God draws people to himself as we are bold enough to speak the truth of his word. So which people are in your life right now? Are they the people who are needing to be convinced and enlightened? They just don't know about God's word. How are you preparing yourself to know what God's word says so that when the time is right, you can clearly and compassionately tell them what God's word says? Are there people in your life that are rebelling against God's word? They are following after their sinful desires. They're rejecting the authority of scripture in their lives. They're gathering together teachers in person, through books, on TikTok, telling them the lies that they want to hear. 
Are you preparing yourself to speak clearly and compassionately to those people, to rebuke them and to draw them back to the Lord? Or are you in a relationship with someone who is discouraged and doubting? not confident in their faith, not confident in their relationship with the Lord. And is God calling you to speak clearly and compassionately so that person can be strengthened, drawn back into the fold, built up as a brother or sister in Christ? Do you see how God's word equips you to do that? To speak the truth of his word in love. But let's be honest. The conversation's always gonna be awkward. My friend Kevin, as he confessed to me where he was really at in his life, put me in a situation where I felt conflict in my own heart. I knew the right thing to do. Was I actually going to do it? What's going to motivate us to actually speak up and stand firm on God's word? And this is where I think Paul begins and ends this chapter so wisely. In verse 1, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. And then you drop down to verse 8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The reason that we will be motivated to speak the truth of God's word into the relationships he is calling us to speak is because we recognize everyone is going to be held accountable to Jesus for the lives that they live. And the weight and the glory of his coming when it looms large in our minds, that all will be held accountable. We will have a sense of urgency not rashness, but wise urgency about the needs of the people in our lives. The day of the Lord, as we talked about last week, is the destiny for everyone, including those that you care about. And it's by holding this day in our minds that we will be motivated to move forward and push in to those awkward conversations, to move into those awkward conversations in light of eternity. It is now in the last days, as we talked about last week, that God has called us to guard the gospel, not by circling the wagons, per se, but by reaching out with the truth of his word to those whom he will give ears to hear and hearts to believe. This is how God will enable us to leave a gospel legacy in our generation. God will strengthen us by his spirit for these conversations. And may we be those who actually embrace these awkward conversations. Those who run the race, as Paul says. Those who fight the good fight, as Paul says. Those who leave a gospel legacy, as weird as it sounds, one awkward spiritual conversation at a time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have given us your word, that you have revealed to us yourself, that you have shown us Christ, and by showing us Christ, you have saved us through faith. Thank you for all that you have done for us through his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension. Would you be at work in our hearts by your spirit? 
helping us and reminding us of what you have called us to do and to be in the relationships that you have placed us. And when we find ourselves in those awkward circumstances where we need to reprove or rebuke or exhort, would you give us the words that we need and be preparing us even now to walk faithfully in those conversations? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.